Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview with well-known Islander, Bill Moyer. Bill, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, March. It's a privilege and a pleasure. Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon on 101.9 FM KVSH. It's also available online 24-7 at voiceofvashon.org, or you can check it out on my website, marchtwisdale.com. So we're going to dive right in. And to get started, Bill, I always ask my guest writers to frame themselves. Tell my listeners basically who you are, what you do. Well... My name's Bill Moyer, and my I'm named after my grandpa, Bill, uh, not after some TV journalist. Uh, I, so, which, and he, his name's spelled differently anyway. My family's been in the Pacific Northwest for about four generations. I've lived on Vashon 27 years approximately. I grew up around here, but a lot of it was uh, on Indian reservations until I was about 12. So that was an important influence in my life. And my uh, both my mom and my dad were uh, Catholics, and both actually my mom said was a nun, and my dad studied to be a priest for nine years in the Jesuits. Wow! Yeah, so this you know the social justice and preferential option for the poor and uh, exposure to communities of color, specifically uh, indigenous community uh, American Indians, uh, was a big part of who I am and what formed me. Um, grade school up in Laconer, sometime at the Seattle University, and in, uh, and a little at the UW, and I finally got a degree at Evergreen. Both act, <laughs> I'm both an activist and I'm also a uh, a musician. That's all both threads in my life. That no, oh, I don't get to see interwoven. enough of your music. I don't think. Well, I think that, that that's something we'll talk about later. I think because um, <clears throat> I'm feeling a, a necessity to sort of reclaim that aspect of my life. I also studied political science and philosophy, so I'm naturally inclined towards that. Uh, the last 13 years, I've been fortunate enough to have directing the Backbone campaign as my actual day job. Right, 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 right. Which so, is pretty so great. I've got a pretty wide audience for Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and some people are on the island, and they're going to know... Most of them, unless they're brand new to the island, are going to know a little bit about Backbone Campaign. But um, a lot of my international audience doesn't. So sure. can you go ahead and real quickly explain to us, just real quick, sort of what's the fundamental focus of Backbone Campaign? Backbone Campaign, most simply, uh, provides what we call artful activism tools and organizing, creative organizing strategies to progressive activists, organizations, mostly in the United States currently. Um, we formed from a affinity group or a circle of artists that were inspired to take action during the middle of the Bush administration or uh, mm. around 2002, actually, so relatively Early in the Bush administration, but uh, in, it would took till about the end of 2003 before it emerged as backbone campaign. So we definitely emphasize the creative elements and the capacity of artists, and leverage the capacity of artists and the the lessons from the arts for communicating. 
And right. I'll, so uh, Backbone Campaign is uh, legally it's a nonprofit. Yeah, we're a nonprofit. So right. we don't take positions on political parties or candidates. Our intent is to shift culture and shift society and doing that with uh, values that are based on the idea that anything of actual importance or nothing of actual importance is for sale. That mm-hmm. in a capitalist system where fundamentally that in that value system, everything is considered for sale and a commodity of sorts, mm-hmm. that in um, in the value system that is going to sustain us over time, a value system based on the idea that we're and the reality that we're all in this together. Right. That, that from that ethic, nothing of actual importance is truly for sale, and that actually things that are of actual importance, this journey that we're on, our experience of family and community, our ex- connection to the place, the nature that sustains us. And they're all, intangibles in a way. In a way, but they're very uh, – they're what are matter most to people. Right, right. Fundamentally. Um, that, uh, and that our obligation to future generations, that those things are sacred and mm-hmm. they're not for sale. And therefore, those values need to be championed in a society mm-hmm. where, for the most part, they're drowned out by um, commodification and the forces of capitalism, which actually create uh, – increase and concentrate power and inequality. Well, it is really fascinating. I think that um, for myself and all of our listeners, we are raised with a real sense of the myth. And I don't say myth as in it's not true. I mean, the mythological in a positive um, framework, um, the mythological story of what America is about. And when you hear about that, what you don't hear about is, you know, America is this great idealized concept because of all the iPhones that we're building or all the um, Cheeto bags that we can make. You don't hear about that. What we always hear about is the ideas of liberty and justice for all, which seems to be what you're talking about. So it's like in the beginning of the framing of what would make potentially a, a great governmental system they really were focusing on those same ideals. Yeah, that's really important to tease out some of those founding strains or threads in our the development of the American society. Uh, we are both a post-Reformation and a post-Enlightenment phenomenon. Our, uh, the ideas of universal rights are present in the Declaration of Independence, but absent in the Constitution. Right. The... Um, one of the things that was been very important for me for understanding and sort of unraveling this this myth and the the competing paradigms in this country of values and ethics, those competing paradigms. One is certainly based in the Calvinist has its roots in the Calvinist origins of the U.S. of a sense of this post Reformation idea that we're alone in front of God that there's predestined people who are chosen and not chosen and the, a key piece of that is that some people are – you can tell that you're part of the chosen by signs, that you're, you're station in life. So those Calvinist ideas hmm. are woven into capitalism as a kind of celebration of inequality because in America, we're not merely materialist. We are a kind of sacrament and that inequality is the corollary in that you can't ethically have more unless you somehow earned it and they 
through a sin or a mistake or a failure, gave it up. Or predestination, where nobody had any choice. And so you're just proving that you're part of the elect by your station in life. And therefore, you only can see your station in in contrast to others. So there's an inherent need for inequality in that system. Interesting. And I think think of that as the religion of capitalism. And, um, And that is uncomfortable for a conversation for a lot of people to have, but I think it's real important that we do that. I got to tell you, man, discomfort with um, conversations is running rampant right now in this country. It's very interesting how many subjects are becoming taboo and also how many groups are becoming so focused on something they care about that if you step outside and say, you care about this, those people care about that, and both share a fundamental um, key principle, maybe we can unite together. There's a lot of difficulty around that right now. I, I personally, in the last week, have just been shocked by the number of groups that are like, nope, can't talk about that. Nope, can't talk about that. And I'm like, but I thought we were in this this really upheaval political period where people would actually open up to talking about more. And many, some people are. But there's also, I think, maybe a natural human reaction to just want to want to get away from strife and conflict by focusing on the echo chamber. We've got all these little echo chambers everywhere. And I'm like, mm, I don't see that as uniting us. I see that as a form of, of self-division. Mm. It seems to me that we have uh, – like we have these paradigm battles between we're all in this together and winner takes all. Right. Um, we are – have both the best of populism and the worst of populism emerging at this time. Um, there's a mm. there's a crystallization of values and differences. We have Standing Rock and we have Trump. We have there's there's it's a time of dichotomy, and I I believe we do better and we're more productive and more effective um, if we ground our work in the root problems, the root conversations. Mm-hmm. Another, um, what's a famous root vegetable? Is the, the radish? Right. Right. Well, radish and radical. I, <laughs> I call myself a radical solutionary. Right. Because I want to deal with, with solving problems at the root of the right. problem, at the root cause. And so I think that those these dichotomies that are happening are important, but let's. I think it's real important that we keep coming back and grounding our conversations in values, right? Because it's uh, parties are a bad place. That's not. That's a false dichotomy. Because whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats, for instance, the value systems that are at competition, capitalism versus we're all in this together, more of an indigenous uh, value system, are uh, are present, and that sense of the sacred is present. Within the hearts and minds of Republicans as well as Democrats. Mm -hmm. There's fights within the Democratic Party around this. There's fights within the Republican Party. So buying into um, a false dichotomy of party politics is a distraction from actually solving problems. It also uh, fails to hold those parties accountable to the values that they often betray. So when we spent the last number of years fighting – against the commodification of everything and everybody via the Trans-Pacific Partnership or the TPP. Right. That was championed by our beloved, intelligent, you know, uh, President Obama and uh, and forces within the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And there's this corporatist uh, thread going through that. And so – and Trump is against the TPP, but – 
for very, very different reasons than <laughs> these fundamental human rights uh, values. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think um, what's brilliant is you were mentioning your inherent choice and the focus on the deeper issues and coming up with solutions. So that's a perfect segue into this book. Yeah, it came out in November. Okay. We've been working on it for a while, a few years. And it's called Solutionary Rail. Yeah, I love the name. So, folks, what I'm looking at here, this is what's – okay, I always talk a little bit about the book, like the physicality of it. This book is so accessible feeling. Thank you, Bill, for doing such a good job. <laughs> it is about – it is less than half an inch thick or exactly half an inch. It is uh, about 95 pages, and the back pages are like references. The font is – Really clear, easy to read. There, um, it's a nice blend of photos or images, graphs, uh, bullet point lists. This basically is a fluid read. It is not overly dense. It's not going to feel tiring. It f- makes you feel like, yes, we can. Yeah. And that's well the, done. Thank you very much. I had a really amazing team working on that with me. Um, a couple of Folks, people will definitely know uh, mm-hmm. who are on the island. Uh, Margot Boyer, she did the copy editing. Patrick Mazza, who lives in Seattle, is a very talented writer who helped uh, weave a lot of uh, technical documents into readable text. Right. Worked with, then with Margot as a copy editor and myself as a co-writer. And, and then uh, the layout was led by Kathy Fulton. Uh, who just did a marvelous job, and she and Margot mm. and some others worked on the collection and organizing of the imagery and the graphs. The images, we commissioned uh, J. Craig Thorpe, who's a f- fantastic illustrator who has a deep background in rail and has done a lot of work, what he calls painting the possible. So basing very, it's highly realistic. So wait, these are new pieces of art oh, yeah they're they're rendering one is something yeah. did he take a a photo and then turn it into um a piece of artwork or did he uh just a, draw it from imagination basically there was a combination so yeah. you just showed me the the rendering of the tacoma their intermodal yard there mm-hmm. and um we decided on a viewpoint a point of view and we got that from google earth and then the rest of that is pretty much an expression of what that port could look like were it right. were it uh, emphasizing an electrified rail. So, folks, you're just going to have a lot of fun with this because a lot of times. Um, so, when you jump over to the world of fiction, we have dystopian and utopian, right? Yeah. And so, dystopian is like Hunger Games. It's always futuristic to the point where it's really distinct from the modern day, yeah. um, and it's a negative mm-hmm. viewpoint of the future. And then, utopian is positive. And and a lot of times when people are reading Utopian, there's almost like a little bit of a bittersweet feeling because the assumption going into a fictional Utopian read is that it's going to be something that is just something we can't ever get to. It's just too awesome. What a bummer. You know, right. we'll never be able to achieve it. It's such a nice idea. But yeah. what I love about this picture, for example, the one on page 18, is that it really gives me a sense that this is completely doable. Oh, yeah. It makes me feel like I'm looking at some of the images you could see from Japan or Europe where they are miles and miles ahead of us on developing this type of stuff. And you look at it and go, oh, yeah, we could totally do that. Yeah, yeah. Really nice. Yeah, the the whole point of solutionary rail is to 
deliver a winnable campaign and to utilize the book as an organizing tool to show people that even though communities have very different interests, those Mm -hmm. interests intersect and are positively impacted with an electrified freight rail system. And so it gives us an opportunity in a time of great division to actually create conversations and dialogue and understanding and bring people into common cause right. who come from very different communities. And, yeah. and, and it's a non-ideological coalition, but it also comes from a bottom-up perspective, the idea that when the people lead, the leaders follow. And well, that, and you know, yeah. even though you say it's non-ideological, the reality is that a person who lives in a community where they've never met another person from the Philippines and they don't have a friend and they don't have a relationship, they can only have stereotypes or assumptions about a person who's from the Philippines. And when you have this opportunity, you get a job and suddenly you have a coworker or, or whatever it is, a person who's from this the Philippines, let's say, and you get to know them and you spend two years being their friend and they become your close buddy, it completely informs you in an, in a new way that that authentic relationship is important. You could read a book about how people from the Philippines are great and wonderful, but it's not the same as having a true, honest friend. So I could see that if you have people in a supposedly red state um, and people in supposedly a blue state or whatever, and they come together to actually work on a project like this and they come to appreciate each other and to rely on each other and to cooperate and depend on each other and they succeed, they walk away thinking, oh, I love those people. And gosh, golly, I never thought I'd just love someone so much who happens to be a Republican or a Democrat or whatever. In a way, it takes the human and allows it to break down those artificial concepts we have and judgments. Yes, and I think that's really important because the 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 power play of political parties and an interest in undermining the success of any other political party. So we couldn't possibly have something positive come out of a Obama administration or vice versa. We couldn't possibly have something positive come out of a Trump administration. Well, this isn't about a Trump administration or an Obama administration. This is about can we create a coalition around the common good and a sense of common cause for the common good and then create an existential crisis for those who are in elected positions where their survival in that seat of power, that that privilege that they have to serve us, we create an existential crisis for them that they either have to listen to the will of the people or they need to find a new job. Right, right. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, the way this system is designed to work is that the leaders are following their constituents. That's the whole point. And and yet we've gotten so deeply mired in the current situation where the power is just out of our hands, you know, it's just bam, it's way over there. And so there's a lot of um, legislators who are going home to their districts. And if they don't have a town hall, if they don't have open meeting time, then their their constituents can't even access them at all. And that seems to be like we've gotten really far on the pendulum. So I think the idea of swinging back to where our representatives are saying to us, hey, wow, that's a great idea. Look what you're doing. How can I help you? Yeah. I think this is gets back to a theory of change, like how does change happen? And a couple things come to mind. One is that I, I was listening to the radio and I heard some portion of a of a report on a 
white supremacist group in Europe doing organizing. What was brought up that really resonated for me was that they weren't organizing around policy or pol- or political parties. They were trying to instill fear and hatred and, and a sense of white supremacy within the society. Well, the corollary to that is in order to build that social movement power, to, in order to shift the tide for the value system, we're all in this together, um, we have to be, ground again, grounded in, in the values and the common human common experience, not the ideology or the political affiliation. So even in moments where, yes, I would like to see uh, Donald Trump toppled out of this, out of power and everyone with him as well. And yet I want to be very conscious and mindful about how I walk that path in order to make sure that I'm not being manipulated or co-opted for a political party right. that is um, that is actually not listening to me. So Solutionary Rail mm-hmm. is a proposal for railroad electrification in the U.S. We use the word solution because it's solving problems. Um, there are so number- what, wait, wait. So what exactly is railroad electrification? Electrification. electrification. So, so explain the yeah. shift more concretely. So currently, United States freight rail, and the reason I say freight rail is because almost all of our railroad is privatized. Its emphasis is on freight transport. Right. And that hasn't always been the case. Uh, no, it is true right now. If you take Amtrak from here down to California, um, you will be the one that's late, not the freight. If if That's yeah. why a lot of times they're late because they have a priority and Amtrak is lower down than the freight train. Well, they're not supposed to be because um, – but that's what, how it works out. Yeah. Um, the, the power and the gravitational center of our transport infrastructure right now is not – on the railroads. Although there's a great deal of power in the railroad companies, that's not where our society is putting attention. And, and we would right. like to change that. When we built the interstate system in the 50s, the road, the highway system, what was a vibrant railroad infrastructure that was used extensively for passenger and freight that was on, that served nearly every community, it was perhaps in some decline, but in a time of concentration or um, consolidation. Mm-hmm. Because you know, if you look at a map of 1928 in Washington State, there were uh, probably 30 different railroad companies in Washington State alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were f- three times more track. Um, and even 15% of it was electrified, going over the passes, going through the tunnels. Really? Yeah, and our inter... Um, our interurban lines were electrified. They were even doing regenerative braking, Prius style. Right. The first locomotive that could do regenerative braking was built in 1915. Okay, so in the 50s, we built the um, the interstate. That undermined this system of transportation and the high-value freight, the things that cost more to ship, fled the tracks and moved to trucks. People fled the tracks and moved to cars. But right. we all shared this freeway system that was paid for by the public. The railroads, what are called a common carrier, they're one of the first regulated, they're, I think, the first regulated industry in the United States. The Federal Railroad Administration was first regulatory agency. Those uh, railroads couldn't just cancel service to uh, to towns. They had to get permission to do that. So in a time of consolidation, when their business model was failing, they they needed a way out. And in 1970, we bailed out the railroad companies by creating Amtrak. 
Interesting. So the, yeah. So the the nationalization of of transport of people of um, passenger rail right. was done as a bailout to the railroad companies, not a takeover. So uh, one should know that when you hear the rhetoric of the right around um, the privatization of Amtrak. So the rest of the world, where the railroads are for the most part owned by the public, the investment in the efficiencies of electrification, because you're not having to generate the electricity from an internal combustion engine, mm-hmm. which is very inefficient. The the investment in that infrastructure is uh, is paid for by the public. That infrastructure investment, the return on that investment can be amortized over a long period of time. And so it's happening around the world. I think 62% of Italy's rail is is electrified. Mm-hmm. The Trans-Siberian Railroad was electrified in 2002. Wow. Uh, there's a whole – the thrust internationally is for railroad electrification because you can generate electricity from renewable resources. It's far more efficient to do that uh, pure electric locomotion of the t- of the train. And I, I want to make sure that we remember that tr- putting something on tracks in the first place Right, should be smoother. It's way more efficient. Yeah, than than on tr- than on trucks and and cars. Right, a lot more friction when right. you're yeah. exactly mm-hmm. friction is the key piece, right? Right. So, uh, you know, it's already at least three or four times more efficient to put something on uh, from a diesel truck to a diesel train. And right, they, they're called diesel electric trains for a reason we don't need to get into, but or the the. the the tires, the run, not the tires, the, what they call the trucks on the trains the, right. where the wheels are, yeah. those are electric, but the electricity is generated from a diesel generator. So basically what you're saying is that, um, well, not all the world, but a lot of countries that are sort of maybe taking the long view have been moving towards electrifying the rails. Yeah. There's no reason not to. Everything is in, in the public interest to electrify the rails. The problem is in, in the country, in our country, where it's all privatized. The return on investment is not fast enough for this market. There's also right. there's so the cost of capital to for public bonds versus private capital is more expensive. And a key piece that we're solving here, a key solution, is that improvements on the property, the private property of the railroads. Mm-hmm. can be taxed as like when you do an improvement on your home yeah. or you build extra buildings, your property taxes go up because of those improvements. Yeah. An electrification or electric transmission infrastructure um, for a taxable entity like a railroad company creates another level of burden. Mm-hmm. Our solution, one key aspect and something we learned from other people called the Steel Interstate Coalition is our proposal shares their idea of creating a public belt, like a belt that goes around your waist, where think of this as a belt of some tax-exempt entity, whether it be federal or interjurisdictional collaboration by states, or now we're exploring even ownership by the tribes mm-hmm. of the electrification infrastructure, both to run the trains, but also another higher layer, a layer above for high-voltage transmission. To balance the variability of renewable energy over much larger weather patterns. So when the wind's blowing one place and it's not blowing someplace else, the, the place that's not blowing can be gain, getting electricity from the place it is blowing. 
Right. So that was okay. So that was my question. Um, and by the way, I just I'm going to have to take a second. Hi, everybody. So if you're just joining us, I'm March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'm talking today with Bill Moyer of the Backbone Campaign here on Vashon Island. But really, you guys are awesome. You're all over the country. And have you gone internationally to other places? Only a little bit. But we've actually, we've seen our stuff up here uh, in other places because we have online toolkits and right. we influence by example, like everyone right. else. Like we're influenced yeah. by others. Exactly. Okie doke. So before we return to the interview, we were talking today about um, a little bit about Backbone Campaign, mostly right now about Solutionary Rail, which is a recently published book that's super interesting. I'll let you all wonder if you just joined us, what is Solutionary Rail? We'll tell you in a second. Um, but first, I want to thank those people who allow Voice of Ashon to exist. Um, support for this program comes, for example, from Vashon Heating and Cooling, a full-service heating, cooling, and energy management company. They will diagnose your home or office HVAC problem and offer on-site solutions for energy savings. You can reach them at 206-463-1777. We also have support from Island Escrow, Vashon's only independent escrow company, providing comprehensive service for all types of real estate transactions since 1979. You can call them at 206-463-3137. Okie doke. So, Solutionary Rail, awesome book dedicated to Jack Barbash, Jay Marks, Jerry Henley, and Gene Bosch. Um, we've lost a lot of good people in the last couple of years. Yeah, it's we have. really sad. One of the ideas, if I understand correctly, is that we have this looming, gigantic climate problem, and we need to get away from fossil fuels. And so this is a electrifying the rail system concept. Yeah. Um, but another piece of that, tell me if I'm right or wrong on this, because I haven't been able to read the whole book yet, sure. is that... um. The electricity that runs along these rails, is it going to only be available to the trains or does it actually in a way tie into our electrical connectivity from community to community? Uh, the second. So okay. Solutionary Rail is a people-powered infrastructure proposal that requires a broad grassroots alliance to make it happen. There's an aspect of inevitability to, to railroad electrification because of all the efficiencies in it, but not necessarily inevitable with a lot of the public interest components intact. So Solutionary Rail, is an or, the book, is an organizing tool mm-hmm. for a campaign to help bring those interests together and help do public education and create a coalition that can make sure that electrification in the U.S. be done in a way that is done for the public for public benefit so real quickly right here at the front for example uh chapter one is about rail electrification um a live option looks like an overview things like that and then chapter two is about many advantages chapter three seems to be focused on some of the reasons why it's going to be so valuable to do this and then chapter four which is the final chapter so basically um you know, one quarter of the book, a little bit more than that, is about how to make it happen. So that's that organizing piece you're talking about. A real, buy this from your brother who lives in Kansas City and send it to him and say, dude, man, look what you guys can do with us. Yes, exactly. And so the book, when we send it to the publisher 
And uh, for the last number of years, we've been thinking about the Northern Transcon. And the book emerged, actually, out of a intersectional moment, a challenge from an ally in labor who we mm-hmm. were butting up against in regards to coal trains. But right. we found some common ground on oil trains. And he, this brother, Mike Elliott, um, was willing to engage with me and give me an education of the workers' experience on railroads. Right. So one of the things that happened in that when people and goods fled the, the tracks, the business model for rail shifted. And the one commodity that would ship all year long, the customer that was most faithful to them, right. was all year long and only traveled on the tracks, was coal. Mm-hmm. So there's a real allegiance by railroad workers to coal. That's fascinating. It is fascinating. I mean, that is a good reminder that the allegiance to your employer or your customers can be huge because it's the make or break moment in your survival. Understandable. And the Hmm. the trajectory for the business model then became increasingly emphasizing heavy commodities, uh, large and larger and larger customers. And trains that no longer traveled on a schedule because they would wait till they filled up and then they would go. Well, if you don't travel on a schedule, your workers are always on call 24-7, 365 days a year. There's, you have a chronic safety problem of chronic fatigue. Right. And, and just a miserable schedule. A miserable schedule. It's a terrible working condition even if you're paid really well. Yeah. So there's – a. And then there's the, the push towards automization that's threatening jobs of the workers. And that's what happened uh, up in Canada is a one-person crew train, Lumagantic, allowed the brakes not to get set or something happened. And the brakes were released and that oil train crashed into the into town. Into that town, yeah, yeah. So, How many people yeah. were injured? And I'm not going to – I don't have the number off the top okay. of my head. I want to say 34 were killed, but right. I don't remember. Right, right, right. Um, so – the labor has real interest in having a regular schedule on trains of having two people minimum crew size and to no longer have whistleblowers um, afraid to report in safety incidences because mm-hmm. they'll be retaliated against. Absolutely. Because, Absolutely. But the companies, if you understand that when a problem is systemic, it, they can't really just shift the policies because policy shifts don't solve a systemic problem, something that's inherent to the business model. So it's necessary, and our opportunity now is becoming more and more apparent, that the business model that relied on coal is now a failing business model for the railroads. So what's right. the next business model? Right. And it's not oil trains. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not bomb trains. It's not... So, well, it can't be any of those because they're all short term. Exactly. They're all based upon a rapidly disappearing resource that will not be replaced. Exactly. And an increasing public resistance to those things traveling through their communities right. or powering their systems or being exported through their, um, their ports. So uh, BNSF, mm-hmm. uh, what used to be Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, BNSF, BNSF is, interestingly enough, the second largest consumer of diesel in the United States, second only to the Department of Defense. Oh, my goodness gracious. That is a lot of diesel fuel being used. Right. Imagine that. And it's being used 
to move a whole bunch of trains, which have a whole bunch of stuff on them, including a bunch of trains that are carrying coal, right. which is then going to be put on ships using oil to ship to China to be burned. Yeah, I, you got it, it. I really would love to see the numbers on how much value we lose when we use a fuel source to transport a fuel source to, to the other side of the planet. Yeah. There's got to be some losses going on there. There's got to be. And my brain can't quite fathom no, no, no. it totally. So I'm not going to yeah. write about that. But um, th- it does create another alliance. Well, obviously, we spoke earlier about the efficiency. So if we take away right. um, that inefficient fuel source to power the trains and we return to use of electrification, electricity to power the trains, and, we, and if the public is in some manner owning – a tax-exempt entity is owning that electrification infrastructure. A true they, public utility. Somewhat, but it might be that it be – we call it as a steel interstate development authority because it oh. might be a new entity. Okay. It's an interjurisdictional authority that's a collaboration between states and tribes or the federal – some combination of – Right. That because it has authority over that system, it could mandate and that the trains that run on that run on renewable energy and that are powered by renewable energy. So – it could buy only renewable energy to put into that system. It could also own a transmission infrastructure that would balance the variability of renewable energy from um, wind in the Midwest and solar and wind in the Southwest. So when we wrote this book, we were specifically talking about the Northern Transcon, the, right. the Seattle to Chicago routes, which are two 2,200-mile routes that cross each other over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um Increasingly, I'm convinced that it's actually that transcon and the southern transcon from L.A. Long Beach to via Kansas City to Chicago that should be combined and that most likely a north-south corridor as well. So, right. So you have a full circle. Or triangle, yeah. And um, and that, the, you, that way we harness the leadership of California, which is actually – the only place I see public debate around decarbonizing freight. It also allows us to reach out to the tribes. Mm-hmm. So like last week I was talking with the president of the Congress of American National Congress of American Indians and um, recommending that that we investigate the, the potential for the tribes to be part of this or lead this. What because- percentage of the um, railways – are going through tribal lands. Because it's interesting when you think about rail, yes, they hit cities and all that, but they also spend, like like the freeways, they spend a lot of time out there in big open expanses. Yeah. And a lot of times that's actually the land that's set aside right. for the Native Americans. Well, considering we're all on stolen land, I guess, every, yeah. everywhere we go. But to get more legalistic and, yes. and realistic with you, yes. um, there are, I believe, 14 tribes between Seattle and Chicago. I don't know that they all are on the Transcon, but there's right. a map there that has the Class 1 railroads overlaid over tribes, tribal land. You'll notice on that map that there's also a number of tribes on that southern Transcon. So the tribes in 2010, 28 tribes, were part of a marketing appeal to wind developers and investors to invest in in wind development on tribal land. Right. So Standing Rock, the Standing Rock Sioux, were one of those tribes. And a BNSF rail line passes right through the Standing Rock Reservation. Mm-hmm. So 
our idea, of course, is that, oh, I should say that early on, I spoke with a guy named um, Ray Wiseman. He's the person most responsible for for creating Yakima Power, a new utility started by the Yakima Nation, one of the indigenous uh, peoples in eastern Washington. And uh, they are very in, interested and invested in uh, building out their renewable energy capacity. But they've hit a, a threshold where they can't get additional financing because they don't have a place for those electrons to go at peak production. So if a community, whether that be a tribal community or a community like Vashon or someplace else, or a community that's along tracks, that wants to build out their renewable energy for their own sort of energy sovereignty, in order to get the financing to do that, they most likely need a place for those electrons to go when the wind's really blowing or the sun's really shining. Right, right, right. That is, yeah, exactly. That big question of we can find places where we have excellent conditions for generating renewable energy, but we don't necessarily have the infrastructure to to get from there to places where people want to consume right. that energy. Right. Yeah, which it, it, it's sort of like um, the whole idea with all these um, pipelines, you know, is that without pipelines, you can't move the the fuel from the back and fields right. to Louisiana. You got to have a pipeline, right? Right, right. As yeah. if that has anything to do with our domestic national security. Yes, right. but wouldn't it be great if there was as much support behind the idea of solutionary rail? Wouldn't it? I would be surprised <laughs> if there isn't far more support for mm-hmm. these ideas were they public. So we could supplant and occupy people's time around conversations about how we're going to solve this problem using high-voltage transmission along existing railroad rights of way, mm-hmm. which is a way smarter way of doing it, a way more affordable way of doing it than uh, trying to bury cable or or buy new land or mm-hmm. – or, um, what do you call it when you um, take um, away by um, – Oh, yeah, eminent domain. Eminent domain. Right. People's land. <clears throat> we don't have to do that. You know, just, just a really interesting thing is that – in the um, Republican platform, 2016 presidential, the actual platform, they very clearly are against eminent domain, not something that they stand for. They're very upset about uh, a Supreme Court judgment that allows it to happen. And energy transfer partners used eminent domain multiple times to coerce people to sell their property for the um, uh DAPL, the Dakota clearly Access wrong. Pipeline. Yeah, yeah. clearly and, just and, wrong. And, you know, I found it was very fascinating. And it yeah. was um, in both cases that I specifically yeah. know if it was um, Republican, you know, governors that, that chose to make that happen. I'm like, that's not in your platform. Yeah, well, <laughs> like, well politicians are not about uh, consistency. <clears throat> no. That is not a requirement for the job. Yeah, should be. <clears throat> okay, so Solutionary Rail, we're running out of time. What's the takeaway thought that a person would have the 30 second takeaway that they can then it's this is the elevator pitch they're going to call up their friend they're going to go have coffee right guys i mean you're going to go have coffee at 4 p.m like i do because you still have to stay awake for another eight hours before you can go to bed and we're all exhausted and you're standing there in the line at the coffee shop and you turn to your friend and say i just heard this really great interview about this cool book called solutionary rail and you got 30 seconds. Well, people should go to solutionaryrail.org and you can get an ebook or or order a copy of the book and then you'll have that tool in your toolkit. Um, the idea that 
we should be returning freight. The idea is that we return freight, uh, the railroads to the center, the gravitational center of our transportation and sustainable, uh, sustainable transportation and renewable energy uh, infrastructure. So what you're saying is we have this existing, um, oh, what, what's the fra- framework? What's the spider? Whatever. We have existing rails that were built up, utilized, and then sort of forgotten a little bit as we transitioned over to independent cars, but they're still there. Well, they're and still there and they're doing be, stuff and that we need to shift the, they need to we shift can renew the, it. The, the model. We can renew it and right. we can create a coalition of people who are suffering from the diesel fumes, people who, farmers who need to get their crops to market, labor who needs a regular schedule, rural communities and rural electrical cooperatives who have lots to gain from this, um, uh, people who care about the climate and the environment of of course, uh, renewable energy forces, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, it's a win-win-win. No win, one loses. Win-win-win. And the, well, the only people who lose maybe are Peabody Coal, and I'm not really too worried about Peabody Coal right now. <clears throat> so that's a big deal, and uh, and I think it's an important time that in a time of division that we find these ways to create unity right. and a sense of common cause. Now, solutionary rail is not going to be done just by backbone campaign, and it hasn't been done just by backbone campaign or bill moyer it's been Mm -hmm. a huge team effort yeah i think it's really important to recognize that that team effort has been from the very technical team who came up with these great ideas to the book team who has generated this really excellent organizing tool and now it's we need people to join the solutionary rail team by being liaisons to their community for this idea we need leadership we need to we washington state labor council passed a resolution last summer in pushing on asking for Jay Inslee to do a feasibility study and to direct his Department of Transportation to look into the solutionary rail proposal. We need the feasibility study money. What was the response? He has not responded. So what we could use for people in this area, people in, and people in California and Minnesota and Montana, is to push for feasibility studies from their governors, their departments of transportation, and their transportation committees in their legislature to study that, okay, how fast and how often do these trains need to travel to shift the economics so that that, those things, the things that are traveling in trucks and cars move back to the tracks. And then where to do those improvements? Right. So www.solutionaryrail.org, solutionary basically spelled the way you would imagine it. And um, I'm looking right here at this website, which, of course, has these beautiful images that were created. And they're they're very motivating. This one in particular is just very motivating. And so essentially, there is an existing team. There's a lot of people all over the place who are excited about this and interested. But a grassroots, you know, movement needs to have broader 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 grass yeah roots. we have we have <laughs> literally and twice a month every, twice a month on wednesdays at 5 p.m pacific time on the second and fourth thursday of the month we host a basically an intake call to check in with folks who are doing work already and invite people to to take action and those and the, that information is at the bottom of the solutionary rail um uh, website front page and or actually under the button upcoming events so right here it says, could railroads, the oldest form of mechanized mass transportation, be the key to unlocking solutions to some of the greatest challenges of the 21st century? 
unique among modes of long-term transport, rail can be electrified. So why not power trains with renewable energy? Okay. Um, what I love, and I love up here a second ago, this flew by. It was a picture. It said um, green jobs and a just transition. Since obviously everyone out there who's working in fields that need to shift, unless we can get, you know, um, free college for everyone, which I think is a great idea, people may not even want to retrain. They might love where they live, love what they do, but they just want what they do to no longer be part of the problem. They want to be part of the solution, right? Yes, for sure. Okay. This is a really great website, folks. I mean, it's it moves, it covers, I think the private takeaway, not takeaway, one thing I want to make sure to mention or just have out there at the end of this is that this is not about one issue. This is very, it's been very clear to me as I've looked through the book and, and flipped through the website that this truly is a win, win, win to the 10th degree. Yeah. There's so many issues that are relevant to so many people, like you said, job safety even. There's just so many issues out there that could potentially be resolved through this approach. And like um, it says in the very beginning of the book here, um, it's a quote, rail electrification as proposed in this remarkable book is that rarest of things, a genuinely new idea and one that makes immediate gut sense. So um, I agree. And that's it from is Bill new. McKibben, some of right. a lot of our hero, wonderful person, and uh, yeah. So we're it's it's uh, it's a no brainer, really. But the problem is, is uh, good ideas don't happen on their own. Right. Good ideas. Uh, it's, it's like backbone. The source of back one of the ideas around backbone or inspirations is that it's not enough to have a good idea. You have to have the backbone. You have to have the social movement mm-hmm. to the body. To, to manifest that idea in the world. And so now we're in the campaign phase. Right. So you want to join the team. What's really cool right now, I think you're lucky, um, is that America is really, really waking up. And so many people who have felt excluded are not only wanting to be included, but they're demanding inclusion. And so maybe, folks, you know, if you're chatting with someone, you're back at that proverbial cafe, and your friend says, you know, I just want to get involved and want to make things better, and I don't know where to start. Honest to goodness, why not send them to solutionaryrail.org? Right, because it takes a lot out of you to be against everything all the time and to be having to pay attention to this onslaught, this punishing onslaught of of negative information all the time. Why not be ground your activism in, activism in solving a problem? Why not return your activism? What I would say is decolonize your time, decolonize your mind. Don't let your opponent define who you are and right. define, put you in a reactive state constantly. Right. Get grounded. Keep your head on the ground, your feet on the ground, right, and your right. head on your shoulders. Head, or head on the With, ground sometimes yeah, if you're laying I'm in the honestly, grass. I think they're going to keep our head on the ground, <laughs> passing out. Anyway. Staring up at the clouds. Yeah. yeah no, that, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, I'm really under – I have – Deep, deep respect and understanding for people who um, the word resist resounds for them and, and, oh, and matters. However, for me personally, I like to create. Yeah. It feels really good to, yeah. to create. Create. Pre- resist, protect, create. That's uh, a little thing we, sh- we actually projected onto the deplorable. Oh, and, uh, right, right, MDC right. During, right before inauguration. And the, the idea of taking back our time uh, – 
not allowing the TV to colonize our imagination, but rather to free our imagination, to take back our time, to join with each other, to do positive things in our community, in our bioregions, and in our country, is actually how we are going to build the power we need for the value system that we're all in this together ethic that we need to base our existence upon. Well, and honestly, it's what life's about. We've gotten distracted from life is about being in your body and interacting with those people around you. You know, when you hold the baby in your arms or you chase some kids around or you pet the dog, you know, that's life. Work parties can be the best experience when the snow comes and the trees crash and people can't get anywhere and you're checking on your neighbors and you're helping them out. Man, it feels so real and good. And Naomi Klein wrote the book Shock Doctrine. Yes. It's about when there's a shakeup, there's a, a pathway, new pathways can be formed. And I'm not in any way celebrating the current crisis that we're in, but I do think that as people are shaken, it's a moment for us to be able to propose something different and for all for us to break out of our ruts and come together and shape the world we aspire we aspire for. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm very, very grateful. Yeah, yeah, this is wonderful. Well, that's our show, folks. My name's March Twisdale. If you're just now joining us, you've been listening to the tail end of my interview with Bill Moyer. Um, Gosh, golly, basically um, activist extraordinaire in so many ways and really a great visionary. I am glad to share this island with you, Bill. Oh, Likewise. I hope people will also uh, resist and build resilience with us by visiting BackboneCampaign.org, where we have lots of tools and opportunities, as well as SolutionaryRail.org. What we're working to do right now is to create a change agent training center, a permanent center for strategy, reflection, and solidarity. And we want to do that on Vashon Island at the former youth hostel. And right. this this change agent center, is kick, we're kicking off that idea to people in our region, not just mm-hmm. the Vashon, with these um, two-day, one-overnight stay yep. on community organizing, uh, storytelling and media making, artful activism and, and campaign design, creating the world we want to live in, right. and um, and cultural work about healing the sense of fragmentation from each other and alienation from place. Yeah. So we're building a program around that and We want to invite people into that vision as well. That sounds wonderful. And that's right next door to me. Ha ha. I love it. All right, everybody. So thank you for joining us today for another episode of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guest writers share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time.